Strangers in the Outland by Paul Finch. Chapter One After so many years prospecting in the wilder zones of the outland, Tiberius and Yelala were used to the extreme cold. But in the depths of winter, the air temperature could drop even lower, the frequent blizzards exacerbating this with a terrifying wind chill. Tiberius often considered that he ought to take his daughter back into Christmas, at least until spring arrived though this was never a high priority. In 40 years spent scouring the outland, he hadn't yet found the mother load, which made him all the more determined to keep trying. He knew there were precious metals out here because he'd found placer fragments in alluvial deposits where ancient creeks had once run. So as a rule, he didn't take the time to retreat from even the most bitter winter winds. And if eight-year-old Yilala ever complained about it, which she rarely did, to her immense credit, his stock response was to swathe her even deeper in furs and woolens. Ultimately, of course, despite her tender years, Yalala was too useful a pair of hands to dispense with even temporarily. She was already strong enough to wield an ice pick and a shovel, and he'd taught her how to pack and place a boronite charge. Not that having so young and willing an assistant meant life out here was any the less a tale of unrelenting hardship. Tiberius often pictured them as a pair of pathfinders from the old colonial days of the Americas. He'd never visited Earth, of course, but he'd seen pictures in history books. One big difference was the near-perpetual night of Trenzalore. That had never been a problem for those ancient American pioneers, and they'd often enjoyed the advantage of having horses or mules to carry both themselves and their equipment. Tiberius and Yalala benefited from no such beasts of burden. Only Housie and Mauki, their indefatigable snow dogs, though neither looked especially canine when gambling across the snow in their trousers, tunics and special dog-shaped balaclavas, which Tiberius had fashioned for them out of two handsomely patterned rugs. It was Housie and Mauki who first saw the objects falling from the sky. They were drawing the sled slowly along Devil's Elbows Canyon, a Z-shaped passage bisecting the frozen rocky ridge called Fafnir's Crest and opening just south of the vast moon pine forest known as the Tundrawald. They had emerged from the choke, the canyon's narrowest point, when the dogs slowed to a halt, hot breath pluming from the ends of their colourfully mittened snouts, their saucer-shaped eyes unblinking. Mush there, boys, mush! Tiberius called, snapping the reins. The dogs were at first too distracted to comply, and now he followed their gaze, peering up at the black silk sky, where very fleetingly six curious objects trailed down past the silver face of Soror, the slightly smaller of Trenzalore's twin moons. And what might this be? he murmured. He spoke to himself, 
but Yulala, sharp-eared as always, heard him. She scrambled up to her knees amid the blankets and mufflers at the rear of the sled and caught a fleeting glimpse of the last descending silhouette before it vanished from sight. There'd been six of them in total, Tiberius thought. Curious things, of no recognisable shape. But by their direction and the angle of their descent, they were coming down over the Tundravald. He yanked his scarf aside to scratch at his straggly grey beard, a common habit when he was agitated. One other reason for keeping his daughter in the outland was the danger that seemed to lurk around the town. For all its choirs and bonfires, its mulled wine and merry meetings, Christmas was only safe to visit fleetingly and sporadically these days. It didn't matter how highly its occupants thought of the oddball toymender in the clock tower, or how successful he'd supposedly been in warding off these unexplainable and yet unaccountable menaces from the stars. At some point, the chap was going to fail. Though his tenancy here had already outlasted Tiberius's entire life, the doctor, as he was called, was withering with age and stress. He'd already lost his left leg in some conflict or other. By contrast, the outland, for all its wild beasts and frigid perils, was a safer place in so many ways. And yet now there was this mystery. Christmas was over forty miles south of here, beyond a trackless wilderness. Despite this, logic suggested these new objects from the sky must be connected with all those others occasionally falling. And yet Tiberius's instincts told him differently, and he trusted his instincts implicitly, even if they had led him from the crag to plain to Icefield Cave, and on no occasion had rewarded him with more than a few sparkling trinkets. Marsh! he shouted again, snapping the reins. The snow dogs pressed on, easing up to a gallop. Standing five feet tall at the shoulder, and running seven feet nose to tail, they were a breed specific to Trenzalore, and vastly sturdier than any of their cousins on earth while their heavy double coats enabled them to resist the worst ravages of the very worst winters. As such, a mile or so further on before the sled had even left the devil's elbows, the deadfall ended and a fresh blizzard struck, intense blasts of snowflakes blotting out the clumps of moon pine and the towering wind-carved rocks. But the team drove gamely on. They were even more exposed on the plain beyond the canyon, where a fierce westerly was blowing. Yelala buried herself under more blankets and quilts. Tiberius hunched forward over the handlebars, plastered head to toe with white. But this was the kind of endurance they'd been required to show throughout their self-imposed exile in the outland. And in just under an hour they'd reached the outskirts of the Tundravald, where the westerly slackened into another deadfall the name given on Trenzalore to the brief lulls between storms, and though flakes the size of goose feathers still fluttered around them, the sword edge of the chill had dulled. They drove across several outer clearings where flawless drifts of snow climbed to half the height of the pines. Whoa there, whoa! Housie and Mauki slowed to a thankful halt, sagging in their woollens. Tiberius gazed uncomprehendingly upward, 
to where strips of cloth dangled through the boughs on his right. Daring to remove his rawhide glove, he felt at the nearest piece. It was soft, pliable. Silk, he thought. Briefly, he was excited. He could barter silk in Christmas when he next visited. The most he was usually able to trade in town were furs, hence he did a little trapping and hunting alongside his normal activities. It just about kept him in supplies, but silk was a rare commodity on this planet and would be worth considerably more. It might enable him to acquire some new boronite. Then, sensing a presence, he glanced left. Nothing stirred beyond the level, moonlit surface of the clearing. The nearest trees were shadowy stanchions, the further clumps a silent labyrinth of night-black evergreen. Yulala, he grunted, stay. Her pale face peeked through a rent in the bundle of blankets while he attached the snowshoes to his fur-wrapped feet and plodded away. Yulala always obeyed. Firstly, because she'd known no other course than to follow her father's curt instructions. Secondly, because she knew it was vital if she wished to survive. This frigid realm forbade life to all but the cleverest and most robust. The population of Christmas only ventured out here when necessary, and in small hand-chosen groups. Even then they'd sometimes fail to return, having lost themselves in blizzards, sunk into drifts or fallen down hidden gullies. On occasion, she and her father had stumbled across their pathetic remains, usually encased in ice, with frost wounds more terrible than anything she'd seen in her worst nightmares. If she didn't wish to suffer the same fate, it was crucial she follow her father's rules. But soon, after nearly two hours, there was still no sign of him. The blizzard had now ceased completely, and there was a magical stillness, the moon sparkling on the deep, crisp white and shafting through the black lattice of the pines. Housie and Mauki lay alongside her, burrowed partway under the surface, virtually wrapped around each other. They regarded her curiously when she finally stood up in the back of the sled and paused to listen. Again, nothing moved. The only sound was the distant hiss of wind on the ice caps. She thought to call to her father, but every part of her body was wrapped, aside from her eyes. She didn't even wish to take the muffler from her mouth, as her lips would dry and crackle with indecent speed. At length, she fitted on her own snowshoes and stepped out. The very least she could expect now was that her father would scold her. But other fears were more prominent. What if he'd hurt himself? What if he'd got stuck? She'd ventured no more than five meters when the dogs began to whine and growl. At the same time, there was lurching movement on her right. She spun around, and her eyes almost popped from their sockets as a great slab of solidly packed snow tilted slowly upright to face her, finally reaching a height of maybe two meters. Even as she stared at it, portions fell away, revealing the basic outline of a man, a torso, limbs, and a head. Though these two were so caked, they were almost indistinguishable. 
only as it lumbered forward, its ever heavier tread crunching the frozen surface, did the final vestiges of snow trickle off, enabling her to see the face beneath. Yalala still didn't bother to pull down her muffler. Though it remained firmly in place, her terrified shrieks could be heard far across the wintry waste. Chapter 2 Strangers in the Outland, the doctor said as he slowly descended the clock tower stair, his artificial limb creaking and clumping. What exactly does she mean by that? It's been difficult getting anything coherent out of her, Caleb replied from below. He was a rangy young fellow with a lean face and a mop of reddish straw-like hair, only its fringes visible around the edges of his woolly hat. Becca says she's in deep shock. The trouble is she muttered a few things that didn't make much sense and then stopped talking. Be good if you can speak to her. Who is she? Her name's Yalala Gluck. We don't know her very well, to be honest. Her father's Tiberius Gluck, a bit of a recluse. He moved to the outland after his wife died, always searching for gold and silver. We occasionally see him. Tends to bring us furs, amber and the like, which he exchanges for food and clothing. A trapper, the doctor said, looking boyishly pleased. How quaint. You have met him before. Have I? The doctor wound a scarf around his neck. Raccoon cap, dead shot with a musket. Uh, oh, no, wait, that was Davy Crockett. Or, or was it Daniel Boone? Oh, sorry, he shrugged. No memory of it. You live all these centuries and start forgetting things that happened a matter of heartbeats ago. It were more like five or six years. Well, that's what I said. The doctor turned to his workbench. What do you think, Handles? Strangers in the Outland, what's your take on that? The battered old cybernetic head sparked to life. There is insufficient data to make a proper analysis of these so-called strangers. The Outland is a subarctic environment able to support only the hardiest forms of boreal plant life, which consequently... Yes, yes, the doctor snapped. We know all that. No inferior native bipedal life forms of any description are registered in the Trenzalore Fauna catalogue. However, the catalogue may be expanded if additional discoveries are... No, thank you. The doctor shrugged into his overlarge fur coat. We're not in the business of exploring Trenzalore. We can leave that to the Tiberius Glucks of this world. What are you standing around for, Caleb? There's no time for dawdling. Oh, sorry, Doctor. My stick, if you please. Caleb handed over the Doctor's elaborately carved cane. How many strangers did this mysterious child see? Caleb pondered. She thinks four or five. And how many did her father see? Well, that's just it. He didn't return with her. Aha! The doctor's face screwed into a frown as he headed outside, his fur coat so large that it trailed behind him. Now, that's something I can get my teeth into. Takes a flippant attitude to his child-rearing responsibilities, does he? I shall certainly be having a word in his ear. Tough old coot of an Indian fighter or not. 
He stopped short outside the clock tower, where a row of five husky young men awaited him. All bearded and weather-beaten, their colourful village garb only accentuating their burly physiques. And what's this? The doctor paraded past them, Sergeant Major style. Joshua, Reuben, Joseph, Jeremiah, Luca. He raised a querying eyebrow at Caleb. All members of the lifeboat crew, unless I'm mistaken. Are we going sailing? We thought it might be necessary, Caleb said. Anything for an adventure, eh? The doctor struck out across the snowy street to the Moot Hall. The lifeboat crew tagged along behind. You don't think so? Caleb asked. I think that neglectful parenting was a sad but regular occurrence on Earth, the doctor replied, and that it was only a matter of time before it followed man out into the stars. Gluck lives in the outland. He thinks he can get away with anything, you see. But what about the strangers? How do we know they're strangers to Tiberius Gluck? The girl fled forty miles to get away from them. They can hardly be friends. The doctor swung around on the point of his stick, eyebrows knitted together. Forty miles? She had two snow dogs in harness. Lesser beasts would never have made it. Forty miles, Caleb? She came all the way from the Tundraveld through the devil's elbows. We estimate forty miles at least. The doctor pondered this as he strode on into the moot hall, which was as crowded as usual, though less jovial by far. The ranks of villagers parted as he came through. In the centre, a young girl wearing rough homespun clothing was seated on a stool, her hands bound in fresh bandages, each finger individually wrapped. Nurse Becker, the town's most skilled medical practitioner, knelt alongside her, gently massaging a diminutive pair of bare, white feet in a bowl of lukewarm water. Despite this, the child shivered, her cherubic features wan even in the rosy firelight. Her lips were thin and pearl-grey. Her moist eyes twinkled, though they stared apparently at nothing. Her fair hair hung in damp, stringy ringlets. Mild hypothermia and first-degree frostbite, Becker replied to the doctor's initial inquiry. Aside from that, she's in surprisingly good health. Maybe Tiberius Cluck wasn't so negligent a parent after all. The doctor chewed the side of his mouth. Poor Tiberius. What do you think happened to him, doctor? someone asked. Excuse me if I don't reply to that question in front of the child. Oh, she's too traumatized to even know where she is, Becca said, passing a hand in front of her patient's glazed eyes, drawing no response. The doctor still said nothing, and they all understood his reticence. The truth field was a painfully revelatory aspect of life in Christmas. If, for example, the doctor suspected Tiberius Gluck had been murdered, and that his eight-year-old daughter was extremely fortunate to have escaped with her own life, such as that life now would be, given what she'd probably seen in the outland, and he voiced this suspicion aloud, it would not help the morale of the community's more nervous members. Felix, for one, Caleb's youngest brother, was standing close by listening with awe. And then 
There was the child herself. The doctor knelt to face her. You say her name's Yalala? We believe so, Becca said. Tiberius was very private when it came to family affairs. Yalala, the doctor asked gently. She peered straight through him. There's no need to be frightened. You're quite safe now, but you've come a long way on your own. Do you want to tell us why? Gradually, as if it required great effort, the little brow furrowed. Who were these strangers, Yalala? the doctor wondered. What did they look like? Only after a torturous minute did she actually seem to see him, her eyes slowly refocusing. Her crinkled grey lips puckered into a perfect O. Tremulously, she pointed a bandaged finger at him and screamed. Shrilly, intensely, protractedly, until Nurse Becker and several other mothers of the community moved in to calm her. But all that time she screamed and pointed over their shoulders at the doctor, who at last shuffled outside into the snow. Caleb and the rest of the lifeboat crew accompanied him, bemused. The doctor wasn't just their headman, their reeve, their adviser on all things. He was their saviour. If they didn't exactly adore him, because he was inclined to occasional terseness and impatience these days, their respect for him ran deep as the permafrost. Doctor, Caleb finally ventured, what does this mean? I'd have thought it was perfectly obvious, the doctor replied sharply. Whoever Yelala saw out there, or whatever she saw, he or it looked just like me. Chapter 3 The Trenzalore lifeboat had existed long before the Doctor had taken residence in Christmas. So arduous were the conditions in the outland that it wasn't launched from its barn-like boatshed any more than was strictly necessary. But it more than sufficed for the job because it was a particularly well-built vessel. Rather like a miniature version of one of those old-fashioned sailing brigs on Earth, the lifeboat was sixty feet from prow to stern, yet with an upper deck two square-rigged masts, and a jib and a flying jib at the front, all hung with sails, of course, which his crew would manipulate constantly by ascending the massive rigging strung between them like spiderwebs. The hold in its belly was spacious enough to store any amount of timber and brushwood, not to mention furs and animal carcasses, the gathering of which was the normal purpose of the lifeboat, though it also came out in times of emergency. In addition, the hold doubled as a cabin for the crew, who needed regular warmth and shelter on long-haul trips. Of course, the lifeboat wasn't a lifeboat in the earth sense of the term. There was no surface water on Trenzalore that wasn't permanently deep-frozen. The nearest substantial body of water to Christmas was Lake Lagda, perhaps 50 square miles across and buried under ice. But that scarcely mattered as the boat sat on a spring-loaded undercarriage with special, giant-sized skis affixed, so when the blizzards caught the vessel's sails, they would drive it at terrific speed across the snowfields. 
As always, it required two teams of six snow dogs each to tow the lifeboat from the town and eastward along the Vale of Halva. The only entrance into the sheltered heart of the Halva Fells, the circular mountain range in the midst of which Christmas nestled, and along which the sun would shimmer during those few moments it rose above the horizon in the summer. The dog teams were harnessed to port and starboard rather than at the front, for as the fells flattened out on either side, the cyclical winds of the open plain would fill the vessel's sails. The harnesses would then be loosened, and the teams would peel away in safety while the lifeboat sped on through the storm. From there on, it was all down to the helmsman. We're in the teeth of a northerly, Caleb shouted to the rest of the crew as he stood on the raised bridge, both hands locked on the wheel, only his eyes visible above his woven scarf. Double tack to port tack! The crew nodded and went scrambling up the pitch-coated ratlines to adjust the sails accordingly. Only when the wind changed direction, which it did regularly in the outland, but predictably, which was why Caleb had a wind chart, covered in glass, mounted on his right, could they retreat through the hatches to the hold, where a canteen of hot coffee bubbled on the coal-fired stove. The doctor, meanwhile, stood lost in thought at the prow, ignoring the snowflakes whipping past him like arrowheads. Though lately, even the doctor had taken to dressing for the cold, donning a woolen cap, scarf and gloves, and, of course, his immense fur coat. True, he didn't overpackage himself the way so many trekking to the outland did. Even now he wore the fur coat open at the front, so that it swirled in the gale. But time was when he'd almost been oblivious to the Trenzalore freeze. Doctor, you catch your death, Caleb called, spinning the wheel and commencing the slow curve windward. The doctor didn't seem to hear. He regarded the whiteness blurring by in silence as they breasted the snows with a steady swish and a regular flap and thud of ropes and sails. The lateral resistance of the frozen surface enabled them to maintain a constant steady course, but at thirty knots it was hardly a smooth ride. The craft jolted frequently, veering and swaying as the streams of wind wove into and around it. Now and then the ice-shattered stumps of moon pines loomed past, like tortured, wind-twisted spectres. There were other obstacles too, dips and hummocks, towering rock forms, but Caleb knew his job. They bypassed each and every one without a flutter, a trail of billowing powder at their rear. Remarkable place, Trenzalore, the doctor eventually said, hobbling back along the gritted decking. Takes with one hand, gives with the other. I don't understand, Caleb shouted. Well, one doesn't need to understand everything to know it's there. The law of yin and yang, negative and positive, dark and light. The doctor glanced out across the moonlit emptiness. Everything's unusually well balanced here. Well balanced, we barely see daylight. That's just the point. The doctor dug Caleb's shoulder with a gloved finger. There's almost no sunlight, so what does nature do? It gives you two moons, Soror and Freyta, which creates lunar synthesis, 
allowing plant and animal life to flourish. Look at these temperatures. He scraped a layer of frost from the front of the thermometer glass. By any standards of human history, they'd barely be survivable. Yet your ancestors found a snug little alcove in the mountains. Not only that, you've got all these nice flat surfaces and a constantly shifting tide of wind to propel you smoothly across them. The lifeboat jolted as it hit some hidden obstruction. Well, almost smoothly. I suppose a ride with no bumps would be a bit boring. The point is, you can live here, you can travel, you've got everything you need. And yet it's hardly an attractive place, so no one's likely to come and try to... His words tailed off. Take it from us, Caleb suggested. I suppose that's the other thing, isn't it? The doctor pulled a mournful face. Yes, it is, rather. That's the other bit of balance. No one in their right mind would ever want to live here. Yet all kinds of enemies are massing out there somewhere, or so you tell us. The doctor patted his arm. It's not the ones out there you've got to worry about, Caleb. It's the ones down here. The strangers. Caleb spun the wheel to bring the craft about. Any thoughts on who they are yet? A fairly obvious one, actually. The doctor looked dejected again. But it's not pleasant. I'm afraid your spears and crossbows won't be much use. As well as loading the hold with their survival packs, their skis, snowshoes, horns and the like, the lifeboat crew had also brought a few weapons. Most of these had been adapted from farm tools, but ultimately amounted to little more than toys, none of them properly designed for combat. The aforementioned crossbows, of which there were only two, were next to useless in this situation, small, lightweight items designed and made mainly for hunting purposes. The strangers will be in the same boat, won't they? Caleb said, sounding mildly concerned. Hopefully not in the same boat, Caleb. The doctor dug his arm again with an air of forced bonhomie. As in this boat, that would never do. You know what I mean with regard to weapons. Yes, I mean theoretically, though they'll still have a kind of advantage... Well, we ought to know soon enough. Look what's ahead. The lengthy escarpment that was Fafnir's crest bisected the extremity of their vision. A slow ascending wall of ice-covered rocks and rubble, its upper ridge a hard white line on the purple snow cloud, stretching in either direction as far as the eye could see. No one, not even the doctor, knew if it was possible to skirt around it. They'd never been that far. So usually they had to go through it. Far to the east was the goat path, a zigzagging foot trail leading right the way over the top, though only the hardy or foolish ever attempted that. The main route to the other side was the Devil's Elbows. From this distance, it was no more than a V-shaped bite in the escarpment, a tiny dent. But up close, it would be colossal, more like the Cumberland Gap that ancient mountain pass in the Appalachian Mountains of North America, through which those early explorers had followed the famous Wilderness Road. Almost unconsciously, the doctor hummed a ditty. He sighed. 
Poor Tiberius. Though, of course, if what he feared they now face was actually real, it might be more a case of poor Christmas. Chapter 4 An hour later, the wind direction changed as per Caleb's chart, enabling them to tack towards the Devil's Elbows at greater pace. As they traversed the Espendig Canyon, those crew members not needed on deck came up anyway to watch in wonder as the sloped mountain walls soared up to either side, their snowy flanks broken only by shadowy blots of moon pine. On reaching the choke, a particularly narrow passage, which ran straight as an arrow for half a mile, and at its deepest point was no more than 40 metres across, and overhung with juts of rock bristling with dense, snow-covered undergrowth, the wind speed dropped significantly, and the lifeboat proceeded at a crawl. Sometimes in the choke, as on this occasion, progress would slow so much that the crew needed to disembark, run ahead in their snowshoes, and take up tow lines. This was never quite as tough a call for the men as it looked. The snow was smooth, and the vessel, which usually had momentum, slid easily. Beyond the choke, the lines were drawn in again, and the men scampered back on board, just in time for the southerly wind, raging down the flatter northern slopes of the crest, to fill the sails again and kick the craft forward, the dark bullock of the Tundravald now looming several miles ahead. They bolted towards it along a straight line delineated by Yilala Gluck's homeward-bound tracks, which, though partly obliterated by the recent snowfall, were still visible from the lifeboat prow as rounded ruts in the moonlight. As they reached the outskirts of the trees, the tailwind slackened, and they covered the final few hundred metres at a declining rate of knots. We'll be stopping soon, Caleb called, checking his wind chart. We've an hour's deadfall due, so from here we're on foot. We'll be fine, the doctor replied, scanning the encroaching darkness of the trees and adding under his breath, I don't think we'll have far to go. Reef sails, Caleb shouted, the crew hastening to obey. Directly in front of them, the Tundravald swung open like a pair of black-green curtains, and a snowy clearing roughly the size of a football field was revealed. As they cruised slowly into the midst of it, the doctor could already see that things weren't as they should be. The vessel slowed to a final halt, aided by the furling of its sails. The crew assembled on deck, armed with those few weapons they'd brought. The gangplank was lowered over the port gunwale, and they clumped down it in single file, eyes scanning the smooth whiteness on all sides. As the plain between the Tundravald and Fafnir's crest had revealed traces of Yelala's flight, so this clearing revealed traces of something else, numerous dints in the surface hinting at a protracted scuffle. A faint but arcing impression implied that Tiberius's dog sled had made an abrupt turnaround, presumably when Yalala was seeking to escape. The doctor now gazed into a tree at the curious objects he'd spotted before they'd arrived. Several strands of tattered silk, along with a mess of cords, dangling through the boughs. 
When he glanced further afield, he spotted similar rags and tatters hanging in other trees. What are these? Luca asked, sounding fascinated and frightened at the same time. Blond-haired and fresh-faced, Luca was the youngest member of the lifeboat crew. He'd only been inducted this last year and had no experience yet of life outside Christmas. Parachutes, the doctor explained as the crew gathered. Ingenious, he thumbed at his chin. They couldn't batter their way through the papal force field with their interstellar engines, so they simply dropped through it instead. Who'd have thought? Mind you, it's roughly 400 miles from the top of Trenzalore's exosphere down to the planet's surface. That's quite a journey, most of which must have been spent in freefall. Wouldn't fancy trying it myself. Aha! He'd spotted something else, a dozen meters to their left, and plodded quickly over there. Only part of it was visible, angling up through the snow, though when they glanced around, other half-concealed pieces could be discerned. They resembled fragments of a large eggshell, which in the pale moonlight looked to be covered in ceramic tiles, most of these cracked and blackened. The doctor squatted and scraped away more snow. Five feet in length, three to four feet in diameter around its middle when intact. He hunkered lower to peek inside, seeing nothing but a clean metallic inner surface. No controls, no insulation, no comforts of any sort. He sniffed at the air. It's a cold night, of course, but not a whiff to suggest chemical or biological components. A fireproofed container, then. A simple parcel delivered by a very unwelcome cosmic postman. There are more over here, someone called. There'll be quite a few more, I'd imagine, the doctor said. This will be one of the capsules in which they were first put into orbit. Who was put into orbit? Caleb asked. The doctor stuck his hands into his trouser pockets. Whoever it was landed here. Necessary, I suppose, especially after that orbit started to decay and they passed down through the ionosphere, or they'd have completely burned up. Did quite a bit of damage anyway, I'd expect. The capsules probably broke apart on entering the thermosphere, from which point their passengers were completely unshielded. You're telling us these beings literally dropped from space? Caleb asked. The doctor nodded. Amazing, isn't it, how the simplest methods are sometimes the best. Also explains how they finished up so far off course. Trenzalore's crosswinds take some getting used to. But that's impossible. For you or me, certainly. But it's astonishing what you can achieve when you don't feel any pain. The small group regarded the doctor in stunned silence. So, so you do know who they are? Caleb finally asked. I have theories, the doctor replied. But let's not get sidetracked, eh? We're here to find Tiberius Gluck, not spook ourselves rotten with crazy guesswork. Now, we've come from the south, so we know there's currently no one there who shouldn't be. That only leaves the other three points of the compass, so... 
Joshua and Reuben, you go north. Joseph and Jeremiah, you go west. Caleb and I will go east. Luca, that leaves you to guard the lifeboat. Probably best to stand at the top of the gangplank. That way you'll have an advantage over anyone who comes up it towards you. The boy, who was only armed with the homemade spear he normally used for ice fishing, looked more than a little nervous. Doctor, if these people, whoever they are, if they can't feel pain... It doesn't sound good, I'll admit, the doctor said. But contrary to popular mythology, Luca, no kind of resistance is ever futile. But I mean, the boy could still only stutter, if they look exactly like you... No problems there, at least, the doctor grinned his boyish grin. These chaps have just nosedived through several hundred miles of thickly layered radioactive gases, not to mention all manner of tumultuous storm systems. So you can be sure of one thing, Luca. None of them are going to look exactly like me. Not any more. Right. He rubbed his hands together. We'll search in an expanding circle. But if we reach the point where we're out of sight of each other, we stay in contact by blowing horns, am I understood? They nodded grimly. We have approximately 49 minutes before the deadfall ends, and the evening northerly provides us with a fast ride home. We don't want to miss that boat, do we? They shook their heads. So what are we waiting for? Let's find Tiberius Gluck. They found him. Ten minutes later, in the next clearing, he was seated against a pine trunk, partially covered in snow, his pack a few feet to one side of him. Fortunately, it was Joshua, the oldest and hardiest member of the crew, who located the scrawny old prospector and shook his shoulder to see if he could revive him. To be met by a head lolling sideways on a neck so broken, it was more like rubber than muscle and a face beaten to unrecognizable ruin. No sooner had the rest of the party closed in, the doctor foremost among them, face etched with a deep, angry frown, than they found another body. Luca gave a shrill cry and pointed up into the next tree. This second figure bore the basic outline of a man, and indeed wore pieces of clothing, along with a leather harness from which various cords dangled. But it appeared to have shattered on contact with the higher boughs of the moon-pine, because numerous fragments of it were scattered down through the lower branches. The upright quarter of its torso, still with arm and head attached, was suspended upside down near the bottom, and gruesomely distorted, its head twisted right the way around, all the hair burned from its blistered scalp. The doctor stepped forward to peer into its face, which just vaguely resembled his own though both eyes had exploded from their sockets, while one whole half of it had rippled and bubbled into a scabrous horror. Is this... is this one of them? Caleb said, appalled. I'm afraid so, the doctor replied. It looks... artificial. It is artificial, the doctor said, though such a word doesn't really do justice to a cold, unfeeling mannequin which in normal times would be animated to murderous action by the telekinetic powers of a very unpleasant and vindictive alien life-form. But what is it? 
They have many different names, Caleb, in various different solar systems. But in the world of your forefathers, we knew them simply as... Autons. Chapter 5 You don't need to look so worried, Caleb, the doctor said, kneeling as he rooted through Tiberius Gluck's pack, pulling out an assortment of curios, of which mess tins, trenching tools, fish hooks and several boxes of matches were the only things instantly recognisable. I told you, the Nestine consciousness doesn't have a natural form. Wherever it's housed itself, it will most likely be in orbit somewhere. Probably a spaceship it's hijacked by use of other Autons. And they are all you're ever likely to see of it. Caleb didn't seem hugely reassured by that. He glanced again at the mangled object hanging in the tree. Rubin guarded it, crossbow nervously levelled, while Joshua prowled the perimeter of the clearing, and Joseph and Jeremiah were busy installing Tiberius's body, now wrapped in blankets, into the hold of the lifeboat. "'You're sure it's dead?' Caleb asked. "'Strictly speaking, it was never alive. But it's clearly no longer viable, so it's been abandoned. Nothing more now than a lump of inert polymer.' I thought you said these things were invulnerable. The doctor was briefly distracted as he extricated a single tube of pale, malleable material from Gluck's pack. It was wrapped in thin brown paper with a greasy texture. When he sniffed at it, he detected ammonium nitrate and perhaps a hint of nitroglycerine. Boronite, eh? This was a standard industrial explosive, in Earth's more far-flung colonies, about nine times stronger than ordinary dynamite, but with reduced nitroglycerin content to suppress its volatility. Even someone who routinely appeared to have made bad choices in life, like Tiberius Gluck, could handle it in relative safety. We had a stockpile of it during the early days of the settlement, Caleb said. It was used to shot fire through the bedrock under the town to reach the hot springs there. The leftovers got shelved. Later on, Tiberius took some for his own use. Well, Boronite's always a blast. The doctor tucked the explosive under his coat and rummaged deeper into the pack, producing a rolled-up length of fuse about ten or twelve feet in total. On the subject of the Autons, Caleb, I don't exactly recall saying they were invulnerable... But let's face it, nothing can plummet clear through a planet's atmosphere without it doing at least some damage. It's interesting, though. He glanced up, thoughtful. Perhaps the force field is interfering in some way. Maybe that, and the extreme conditions on Trenzalore, are limiting the Nestine's abilities. I mean, I've known plenty of Autons in my time. Most of them could change their features on the hoof repair extensive physical damage. So why isn't this creature pulling itself back together right now? Caleb asked. Exactly my point, and that's probably the good news. You say that as if there's bad news too. Well, of course there is. The doctor levered himself to his feet. Yin and Yang, remember? Can't have one without the other. At least I can't seem to. 
He paused again. The bad news is that young Yelala Gluck was right. The Autons have always been at their most effective when used as facsimiles, disguised as people of authority. Quite a cool notion, actually, if it wasn't so downright villainous. They simply replace those people in whichever community they're seeking to infiltrate. Once installed, the potential for them to cause havoc is rather high, as you can imagine. So, if only one of this landing party gets through to Christmas, and it even vaguely resembles me, we've got real problems. And that's where they've gone, you think? Almost certainly. The main question is, how many are there? Not more than five, I'd say, Joshua interrupted, ambling towards them. There are tracks over here. They followed him to the far side of the clearing, where a relatively recent trail, now little more than a set of rounded grooves, led away from the trees towards the distant ridge of Fafnir's crest. You can tell there are five of them from this, the doctor said. Joshua nodded. He was the burliest member of the lifeboat crew, and certainly possessed the most impressive beard. As well as his duties on the boat, he'd inherited the mantle of head huntsman from his father. In times when food supplies were low, it was Joshua they dispatched to the outland to bring back snowchucks, ballyblots, and long-eared tundra stag. If he said that these tracks had been made by five individuals, there was no reason to disbelieve him. In fact, it made a kind of sense. If the Nestine's control is limited on this planet, there are bound to be restrictions on the numbers of Auton units it can command the doctor said. I mean, that's even the case on planets where conditions are good. I've never yet seen legions of Autons in action, though I did know an Auton once who was a legionary, I think. He frowned, confused. Memories fade, sadly. Anyway, you and Yalala Gluck are probably right, Joshua. We're only dealing with a handful of them, and that's got to be good. How long before the next win, Caleb? Caleb checked his time dial. Twelve minutes. Oh, that's not so good. We'll be cutting it very close. Why are they heading straight south? Luca wondered, indicating the tracks, which thanks to the bright moonlight they could see ran straight as a ribbon towards the distant ridge, not veering off to the west in the direction of the devil's elbows, or east towards the goat path. Isn't that the wrong way? Not if you're heading to Christmas by the quickest route, the doctor said, hobbling back across the clearing. The others followed. But they'd have to climb over Fafnir's crest, Luca argued. What have I said about the Autons you don't yet understand, Luca? the doctor replied. I told you they never get tired and they have no feelings. They can march over any obstruction you put in their path. Caleb and Joshua glanced at each other uneasily. The same brief image had flickered into both their thoughts. Of five tall, powerful figures, each one battered, broken, partially melted, clad in ragged remnants of clothes, yet plunging effortlessly through the drifts, knee-deep, maybe thigh-deep, but never stopping, ploughing ever forward, the escarpment drawing closer and closer, and when that arrived, simply climbing up it tirelessly, tier after tier, ledge after ledge. 
What kind of weapons do they have? Joshua asked. They normally kill with concentrated energy bolts, the doctor said. Of course, they won't have that capability on Trenzalore. Couldn't get it past the papal mainframe scanners. From the looks of Gluck, they strangled and beat him, Caleb said. Yes, well, the doctor tried to sound less discomforted than this made him feel. At least that means you guys can stand up and fight them. When you get back to town, make sure everyone bars their doors and windows. It won't be easy hammering through those with bare plastic. When we get back to town, Lucas said, are you not coming with us? The doctor turned to face them. Of course I am. He gave a half smile. At some point. First, I want to have a go at sailing the lifeboat. I've always fancied that. He strode on. The group exchanged further bewildered glances as they followed. So, when and where are we splitting up? Caleb asked. When we get to Fafnir's crest, the doctor replied. I'll take the lifeboat helm and drop you off at the foot of the goat path. From there on, you're walking. He slapped Caleb's shoulder. You're sturdy young men. You've got Joshua to lead you. You've got your thermals on. I'm pretty sure you can make it back. In the meantime, once we get aboard, I want you to hoist the mainsail only. You understand? What if we don't make it? Caleb asked. Well, the doctor's smile faltered. I'm rather afraid you're going to have to. It's just possible you guys may be the townsfolk's only hope. Worried glances were again exchanged. The crew knew better than to question the doctor. They'd been raised from childhood on that very understanding, despite his occasional moments of insanity, and yet now he was abandoning them. These autons have a head start, Joshua said. Even if we sail to the goat path, that's still far to the east of here. We won't gain much ground on them, if any, and they don't get tired, remember? They'll reach Christmas long before we do. They won't, Joshua, the doctor replied. I'll do my level best to ensure that. So you're not leaving us? Luca asked querulously. You're not running away? I never run away, Luca. Ever. Luca smiled but swallowed nervously. I don't understand, Caleb said, treating the doctor to a searching gaze. After you've dropped us off, as you call it, where will you be taking the lifeboat? The doctor shrugged. Where else? Into the devil's elbows. Running under a single sail, there's no chance you'll get through the choke at any kind of speed. Even in a strong southerly, you'll barely be moving. I know. The doctor's face broke into a beaming grin. He poked the suspicious helmsman in the ribs. And isn't that the whole genius of it? Chapter 6 An hour later, with the evening southerly howling at full force, the crew were even less enthused about bailing out from the lifeboat. It was perhaps understandable. Though they were all young, energetic men, 
and though they were well equipped and had Yoshua to guide them over the scant trail that was the goat path, they still had two or three extremely difficult days ahead as they trekked back through the outland. And of course, when they finally returned to Christmas, none of them knew what they would find there. The doctor was occupied at the helm as the lifeboat tacked jerkily westward along the southern edge of Fafnir's crest, his fur coat flapping around him. The shelter provided by the ridge had reduced the wind significantly, so they were travelling at maybe 18 knots, when one by one the men, now bundled in as much fur and fleece as they could manage, threw their skis and survival packs from the starboard gunwale and jumped after them, legs hugged to chests so they would hit and roll in the snow with minimum impact. Each one appeared to make it unscathed, springing to his feet in the lifeboat's rear and scampering to reclaim his equipment. Caleb went last, but turned when he was astride the gunwale. You sure you can manage this vessel alone, Doctor? he called. The Doctor was clamped two-handed to the wheel, the manipulation of which was a tougher job than he'd expected. This simple device controlled huge forces, he realised. Deep vibrations shuddered through the complex mechanisms below, the sheaves, the pulleys, the rudder bars and tiller ropes, not to mention the steering shaft to which the frontal ski's axle was connected. I'll be fine, he shouted back. I think I know you well enough, Doctor, Caleb replied. You wouldn't be making us walk back if the route you'd chosen wasn't even more dangerous. Just get to the town, Caleb. Forget me, forget the lifeboat, and don't even think about working your way along the top of the crest to the devil's elbows. You avoid that place like the plague, you hear? Surely it's better we fight the Autons out here than in the town. If all goes to plan, you won't be fighting them at all. But even the best laid plans can fail if people don't stick to them. Now go! Caleb went, dropping his pack and his skis over the side, then vanishing after them through a swirling slipstream of flakes. The doctor concentrated hard on the glistening white landscape ahead, though the right side of it lay black in the shadow of the crest. He'd hoped he'd be able to see the entrance to the Devil's Elbows when he finally came upon it, which, by Caleb's calculation, would be in about twenty minutes' time. Even when he reached it, he'd be relying more on luck than skill to tack through the narrow Z-shaped passage, though it was some consolation that he only had to travel through it to the midway point, to the choke, where those waiting to ambush him would almost certainly seek to come aboard. The doctor smiled grimly. As soon as he'd realised what they were up against, he'd also understood their plan. The planet Trenzalor had no value to the Nestine. It was a pristine wilderness almost entirely unpolluted. There were no toxins or chemicals in its air, no acids, no metals, no smoke. Likewise, the Nestine had no real interest in Christmas or the people who lived there. This Auton hit squad was here for exactly the same reason as the numerous other intruders, who by various ruses had attempted to enter the settlement over the last three centuries. The Doctor himself. In the first instance, the Nestine had sought to parachute their mindless Autons onto Christmas itself, their plan simply to grab their target and bear him away to his death. 
With the Autons virtually indestructible against weapons fashioned out of farm tools, there'd have been nothing anyone could do to prevent that. But when the furious crosswinds had blown them off course, the Nestine, always able to improvise, had formed another plan, realising the Doctor would seek to discover them, and thus laying an elaborate trap. His thoughts were distracted as he steered into the canyon. A less complex procedure than he'd anticipated, the beautifully designed craft swerving gracefully through the gap, the mainsail swivelling on its gooseneck and catching the full thrust of the southerly wind, which was funnelled and thus propelled the lifeboat forward with even greater velocity. You're a lovely piece of work, the doctor said, fondly patting the wheel's varnished spokes. I am so sorry. For a brief time, the canyon's broad slopes were luminous in the double-strength radiance of Soror and Freighter, the moon pines on the ascending slopes little more than cones of frosted snow. He'd be enjoying the scenery more, though, if he wasn't at least a little bit nervous about what lay ahead. And right on cue, the lifeboat's speed reduced as the canyon wind started dissipating over the flanks of the encircling hills. By the time they reached the choke, some ten minutes beyond the first of the elbows, they'd be travelling very slowly indeed. That had to be the point where the ambushers would strike. It was the only place between the town and the Tundravald where man-sized bipeds had any hope of boarding the vessel. Well, let's see how you do, boys, the doctor said. More to the point, let's see how I do. Because he had to get there first. On skimming around the first of the canyon's ultra-sharp bends, the lifeboat slid briefly out of control, listening to port as he jerked the wheel too suddenly, the frontal skis travelling sideways, before it righted itself and took off again, now along the innermost channel, the valley sides closing in, deadening all sound. The encroaching valley walls were suddenly sheer rock faces, riven with ice-packed fissures and hung with snow-caked moon pines. The light of the two moons steadily diminished, creating a dark, tunnel-like atmosphere, though there was still sufficient passage for the mainsail to drive the craft onward at a decent twelve knots. It might be narrow, but from here on, for half a mile or more, it was dead straight. Even so, the doctor knew he'd have to work quickly. Okay, steady as you go, he said, locking off the wheel, grabbing his stick and clumping down from the bridge to the forehatch which he descended through awkwardly, closing and bolting the hatch doors behind as he went. It was much warmer in the hold, the various bunks crammed with blankets, the stove effervescing heat. There was a rich scent of percolating coffee, which unfortunately he had no time to sample at present. The door on his left led through to the steerage room, a large bell-shaped cavity made from solid cast iron down the middle of which the central steering shaft descended before connecting with the complex mass of rods, springs and axles that formed the lifeboat's undercarriage, and through the midst of which there now came a grinding roar of ice and a constant spray of fresh churned snow which crusted the curved inner walls and rapidly feathered the doctor from head to foot. He forged his way through this to the end of the wire-framed pulpit, 
from where he could reach the upper section of the shaft. Even in his thick mittens, the doctor's fingers were almost too numb to perform the delicate operation at hand. He had to be especially careful taking the tube of boronite from his inner coat pocket. It was the only one, and dropping it out at the bottom of the boat would be a disaster. It was a pity he didn't have more of these, he reflected, as he inserted the needle end of the fuse into its pliable base. But even if he had half a dozen, well, that would be enormously potent, powerful enough to demolish an entire block of flats back on Earth. It might be too powerful to have the desired effect here. If a single explosive detonated, however, the bell-shaped iron of the steerage housing ought to contain much of the blast and direct it downward. Only that way could the doctor be certain of success. Or so he hoped. He leaned from the pulpit, braced the explosive against the metal shaft and bound the fuse around it until it was securely in place. He then wound the other end of the fuse around the tip of his stick and reaching upward was just able to wiggle it through the narrow circular gap at the top of the shaft. When he withdrew the stick, the fuse was drawn off it like a sock and left tangled in the gap overhead. He checked his watch. They'd reached the choke imminently. Hurriedly, he blundered back into the hold, where he set about folding the rugs and blankets in the bunks into human outlines and covering them with quilts. Would the Autons be fooled? Ah, they're mindless lumps of plastic. Of course they'll be fooled, he answered himself. But there was always that element of doubt. The Nestine's control wasn't so weak. As often in the past, the doctor realized he was winging it, taking a chance. But in truth, this was the only chance. Not just for him, but for the entire population of Christmas. If the Nestine successfully dispensed with him, their brutal soldiers would enter the town unimpeded and kill every man, woman and child. Resistance is never futile, he told Luca. But perhaps there were times when it would only delay the inevitable, and not for very long. He could now sense the lifeboat decelerating, the whistling headwind diminishing. The boat began jolting as it hit obstacles in the snow, which otherwise it would have sped over unnoticed. Clearly, they'd entered the choke. He could picture the thick, snow-caked vegetation enmeshed overhead. Thankfully, the lifeboat continued forward, slithering rather than skating, but remaining in motion, and making an irresistible target. Time, boys he said, moving to the foot of the forehatch ladder. Time! He imagined them leaping from overhead, one after another, like commandos crashing down amid twigs and leafage and showers of powdery snow. And indeed, the first impacts now sounded, the thuds of heavy, bloodless bodies landing on deck. Chapter 7 One, two, three, 
The doctor's eyes roved left to right across the arched ceiling. For... There was nothing further. He felt a pang of unease. Only four? Joshua had expected five. Thud. The doctor spun around. The last one had come down at the prow, clumsily, as if it had caught in the rigging first. Confused moments followed as further movements sounded. A shuffling and thumping of heavy feet. The autons turning, searching the deserted deck, and gradually homing in on the one hatch that was still open, the aft hatch. They advanced on it with a trudging, lifeless tread. Timber creaked as weight bore down on the top rung. The doctor scrambled quickly up his own ladder to the forehatch. As he did from the corner of his eye, he glimpsed something twisted and tattered descending into view at the far end of the hold. A similar something was directly behind it. Deftly as he could, he drew the bolts, lifted the hatch and levered himself out, closing the doors quietly behind him and keeping low. From here, the aft hatch was partly screened by the bridge, but he could still see the last of the raiding party, a broken lopsided shape in the glacial dimness, stooping down as it descended into the hold. The last part of it to vanish from sight was its left hand, in which it clasped a gnarled, knotty branch. A club. Autons with clubs. Briefly, that seemed more terrifying than Autons with built-in blasters. He remained crouched, waiting with bated breath, until a frantic hammering and crashing commenced below deck as Autons attacked the covered forms. Jolted into action, the first thing he dealt with was the forehatch. It wasn't possible to lock it from above, but it possessed two ring-pull handles, which he jammed together by thrusting a stainless steel spar through them. For good measure, he unlocked one of the supply barrels fixed in a rack along the port gunnel. Emergency supplies in the event of the lifeboat becoming marooned, these were crammed to capacity with salt pork, salt fish or hardtack biscuit. So it took as much determination as strength to manoeuvre the ungainly thing across the deck and place it on top of the closed hatch. The chaos below was still ear-shattering. For creatures composed entirely of unfeeling plastic, the Autons were unleashing a demonic rage against their would-be victims. More than a little disconcerted by this, the Doctor hobbled along the deck to the aft hatch closed that as well, then pulled down a control line from the overhanging boom, tied it around the handles in the closest approximation he could muster to a constrictor knot, and threaded it through a porthole on the starboard gunnel where he tied it off. Of course, the hatch doors were made of wood, nothing more. The Autons would smash their way back up to the deck in due course. How long it would take them was anyone's guess. The doctor limped up onto the bridge and released the wheel. Only now did he notice how slowly they were travelling, a couple of knots max. The mainsail barely fluttered overhead, but at least there was moonlight looming, the choke finally broadening out. He glanced enviously at the other sails all neatly packaged away. Even if he knew how to unfurl them effectively, there was only one of him. It wouldn't be possible to do it. Instead, he took hold of the wheel, teeth gritted. A cacophony still raged below, and yet it noticeably dwindled, 
as slowly and dully the Autons realize they have been duped. Perhaps a minute later, those clubs began battering on the undersides of the hatches. Still, the vessels slid laboriously on. Any time you're ready, the doctor shouted, glancing up at the drooping mainsail. But it was another 50 meters before the cliff sides folded back properly and the mainsail started rippling again and then bellying. The doctor didn't whoop for joy just yet. The lifeboat was accelerating, but only slowly. Meanwhile, ponderous blows still struck the undersides of the hatches, growing steadily in force and ferocity. Even so, he was relieved to feel that vibration in the base of the steering mechanism. When the wheel lugged to starboard, he had to lean on it hard. The lifeboat's speed increased, the landscape swooping by, snowflakes swirling. Twelve to fifteen knots, he estimated. Steadily faster, fifteen to twenty. This was more like it. They spun around the second elbow at ever-increasing pace, the craft again skidding, the boom swinging wildly, the doctor hanging hard to port, and now, less than a mile ahead, he saw the great V-shaped gap at the south end of Devil's Elbows Canyon. Beyond that lay the open plains, at the far side of which, some thirty miles away, stood the town. But they weren't going that far, or even in that direction. Their destination, though he hadn't disclosed this to the others, you could never be totally sure there weren't already facsimiles among you, lay due west, and no sooner had the vessel burst out into the open space than the doctor saw it. A vast, perfectly horizontal glimmer of reflected starlight, spreading north and south as far as the eye could see. Lake Lagda. It was still several minutes away, but the southerly was strengthening even more, driving the craft with fury. The doctor glanced down over the wheel. Even under the barrel, the forehatch was cracking and splitting in its frame. A blackened fist punched through its centre. No, thank you, the doctor yelled. He hopped from the bridge, grabbed one of the crew's homemade spears and jammed it down through the splintered aperture, again and again with vicious force, striking his target repeatedly, inflicting no pain and yet hopefully hindering it. He only needed a couple of minutes more. That was all. But his foe proved unyielding beneath the taped blade and grappled strenuously with the weapon finally catching the shaft and snapping it in half. A similar crunch of timber echoed from the aft hatch. The doctor glanced around, white-faced, only for the swishing of snow beneath the lifeboat's runners to transform into a harsh rattle and the jolting and juddering of their passage to abruptly cease. Suddenly, they were running smoothly and at incredible speed. The doctor tottered to the gunwale. A gleaming mirrored surface swept away in all directions. He glanced to the rear where the moonlit shore receded fast. He laughed aloud as he limped back to the wheel, dropped onto his haunches and grabbed the fuse he'd threaded up through the gap around the wheel's base. Next, he filched a box of Tiberius Glucks matches from his pocket, only to find that it was no easy thing striking them in this blizzard. One after another, three matches snapped without catching. Four, five, six. And now, with a crash and clatter, the barrel was cast aside 
and the doctor sensed an immense figure struggling to ascend past the steel spar. Come on, come on, he muttered. The seventh, eighth and ninth matches snapped as well, and now there were only a couple left. But the tenth caught, issuing a fast blue spurt which he touched to the end of the fuse. It hissed to life as the doctor pivoted to his feet and stumbled to the starboard gunwale, throwing his good leg over it and with a wild shout of Geronimo, dragging his wooden one after him. Landing on ice at such velocity was something he hadn't totally planned for. It hit him like a sledgehammer, sending shudders of pain and nausea through his entire body. He rolled for maybe 30 meters, a mass of ungainly limbs banging and bouncing on the rock-solid surface and sliding face down for another 20 before staring groggily up after the fast, diminishing lifeboat. The flash, as its bottom section blew out, was blinding. A thunderclap detonation followed, burning splinters gusting in every direction, swamping the doctor as he lay with his head wrapped in his arms. Beneath him, the frozen lake shuddered and then fractured, fissures racing every which way. In fact, the next thing the doctor knew, he was lying on a floating slab, which promptly tilted left, freezing water slopping over his left arm. He clutched on hard, fingertips dug into the glacial surface before it slowly righted itself again. All around him lay a sea of jostling ice cakes, each one cast in a fiery glow by the orange flames erupting through the charred shell of the lifeboat, which had come to a halt about 80 meters away and now sagged downward, prow first. The doctor watched it tensely, willing it to disappear. Surely it would. The weight of that undercarriage, there had to be some of it still attached. Surely that mass of tangled, twisted steel would pull it down. With a loud gurgling, the vessel began to sink properly, its stern rising upward, exposing edges of ragged, smouldering timber where its keel had once been. Hope surged in the doctor's breast. But now the question nagged at him. Could the Auton swim? He supposed that depended on how burned and dismembered they were after the blast. Even if they weren't in such a state, they were solid plastic and far too heavy to float, and Lake Lagda was monstrously deep, a geological fault rather than a flooded valley, dropping thousands and thousands of feet with sheer mud walls at its sides. As he watched the wreck, the flames inside it rapidly dwindled, now doused by an inward pouring tide, until they winked out in a puff of smoke, leaving the vessel little more than a broken, blackened outline. Once again, silver moonlight provided the only illumination. The doctor knelt upright, his scalp prickling as the lifeboat's stern halted above the surface. His ice slab wobbled precariously, but for several seconds he barely noticed this. And then the wreck sank downward again. He almost allowed himself to relax, until he spotted something else. A figure had appeared at the stern, perched like an ape on the rearmost gunwale. 
Even as this last fragment of woodwork vanished beneath the roiling surface, the lanky form sprang away, landing lithely on an ice fragment, rocking it from side to side, and then sprang again. Nimble as a frog, it landed on all fours on a second ice fragment. You cannot be serious, the doctor said slowly. In three bounds, it had come almost thirty meters closer to him. It leapt a fourth time, again landing successfully. It was even closer now. What nightmare parody of himself would this one present, he wondered. First, it had dropped through the atmosphere, and now it had been blown up and seared by flame. There wouldn't be much remaining of his wholesome Gallifreyan features. With a fifth and truly prodigious leap, it reached another fragment this time hitting the frozen surface with an audible thud and landing off-centre to such a degree the slab tipped sideways. The black shape of the auton clung to it spread-eagled, but the slab continued to overbalance, halting briefly upright before flipping all the way over, its rugged brown underside glistening in the starlight. Oh, well, hard cheese. The doctor prodded himself upright with his stick. Dancing on ice isn't for everyone. The best laid plans and all that. He pivoted around, the bitter wind lashing across him, frost tendrils materialising even as he watched in the sodden fur of his coat's left sleeve. His left hand felt raw and numb. Chillblains, he thought wonderingly. First time for everything on Trenzalore. On the upside, the terrible cold meant it wouldn't be long before the shattered surface solidified again, allowing him to limp back to shore. He stamped a couple of times, tapped the ice with his stick, definitely melding itself back together. That was when the Auton exploded up from the water on his right. It was anyone's guess how it had traversed the final fifty meters beneath the surface possibly clambering over other sunken ice chunks, maybe hooking its nerveless fingers into their filth-clotted undersides. But with a whoosh of slush and muck, it now landed with arms spread on the right side of the Doctor's own private island, lopsiding it so spectacularly that the Doctor had to throw himself onto his backside to rebalance it. Up close, the mannequin was every inch the horror he'd imagined, a mangled, contorted effigy. Not a scrap of clothing remained, not a strand of hair, not a hint of facial feature amid the brutish lumps of scorched plastic, save for a single eye, partly dislodged from its sole remaining orbit, but fixed on him with laser-like intensity. The Nestine's eye. Several times battling the Autons, he'd been confronted with the Nestine's eye. Usually, it was artificial, and yet always it had provided a clear window to the soulless malignancy that lurked underneath. It was the eye where the doctor attacked. In truth, he didn't know whether the imitation organ was just for effect or actually served to transmit vision to the hideous intellect in the realm beyond. But it seemed a good place as any, so he slipped forward on his knees and jabbed sword-like with his stick jolting the organ out on some kind of synthetic thread. The Auton, still braced with both hands, could not respond. So he jabbed a second time, and now the eye came loose entirely, 
But this didn't stop the Auton raising its right knee onto the slab, and as the centre of its balance changed, snatching at the stick and catching hold. The doctor yanked the implement back. It was sheathed with ice and slipped from the Auton's grasp. And when he next struck, it was with both hands, smashing it into the side of the monster's head, first from the left and then the right. But doctor, these beings feel no pain. With both knees now on board, it rose towards its feet. The ice tilted again. The doctor slipped sideways. It was a narrow gap between this ice fragment and the next, but was filled with black, slushy water and wide enough to swallow him whole. He scrambled madly backward, coiling his good leg beneath him and catapulting himself upward, hitting his opponent with a massive body check just as it reached full height. The Auton was sturdy enough to withstand the blow, to smother him in a bear hug. But now the slab tilted the other way, and suddenly both of them were falling. The Auton released him, but it was too late. The doctor kicked himself into a dive and landed full length on the neighbouring slab, driving his stick point down to spike himself in place. The impact drove the two slabs even further apart, the fissure between them widening dramatically, and the Auton landed in this with a terrific splash. But it still hadn't fully released him. Its twisted talon slid down his left trouser leg, gaining no purchase but fastening around his ankle. For frantic seconds they were locked together again, the Auton half-submerged and thrashing in the jellied stew, the doctor lying sideways on the ice, the slab tilting up behind him, he began to slide. This is going to be great, he gasped, rummaging with his right hand through his multiple layers of clothes. Like I need this. At the same time, he rammed his free foot down on the Auton's burned face again and again, hoping to cause enough of a distraction in which to locate and snap open several essential buckles, which he duly did. Joint by joint, his artificial leg emerged from his trouser leg cuff. The Auton, still clinging to it, went under. The doctor scrabbled back from the edge, a handful of leather straps disgorging from the cuff and whipping down under the slopping surface as well. A split second later, the ice slabs banged together over the top of it. You think I want to have to go to all that trouble? Again, he groaned twin hearts beating a fierce tattoo in his chest. Make myself a new leg. Almost as an afterthought, he turned onto his stomach and wormed his way to the edge of the slab, peering down through the slight gap that had reopened. Perhaps absurdly, he half expected to catch a final glimpse of the Auton's hairless head as it descended into the void. But he saw nothing only darkness, and now even that was dimmed as new ice crystals formed and rapidly thickened. All around him, the lake was refreezing, the polar wind billowing fresh flakes across its newly ridged surface, pasting it white. It was going to be a long walk home, he surmised, as he levered himself to his feet, or rather, a long hop. The stuff he did he thought resignedly. 
in the name of Christmas.